G'day humans, this episode is uh, part of the Permission to Think series, which is a collaboration that I do with the University of Technology, Sydney, whose Dean of Social Sciences, Alan Davison, Professor Alan Davison, uh, is a breath of fresh air in Australian education. He's trying to create something unique at UTS, uh, which is a space for genuine inquiry and intellectual fearlessness and the kinds of values of debate and consideration of other opinions, even if they're weird or even if they're outside the mainstream, even if they're currently politically or culturally unfashionable. He wants UTS to be the place where people who are actually interested in the vibrant exchange of ideas can go and not feel like they're just going to go and learn the way that they're supposed to think in the given the cultural climate that we happen to live in in Western liberal democracies in 2022. Uh, therefore, he and I are collaborating on this uh, on this series, a Permission to Think. And today's guest is another academic, Professor David Martin-Jones, who has a PhD in political thought from the London School of Economics. He now teaches at King's College, London, those two shabby places. Never heard of them, have you? King's College, London School of Economics. He's particularly interesting because he has some experience and specialty and understanding of Asia. He was a political science lecturer at the National University of Singapore. He is an associate ed- editor of the University of Malaya's Southeast Asian Studies Journal. And the reason why this is important is because he's developed a thesis where he sees echoes of Maoism, of Mao's cultural revolution in the West today. You know, you hear sometimes people, you know, the Jordan Petersons of the world will talk about Marxism at, in universities and so on, which is always a little bit of an awkward fit. It's not quite right that these people are being Marxist materialists. But maybe the kinds of people who are enforcing speech codes and who are very up on trigger warnings and cancelling people for saying the wrong thing and enforcing a certain doctrinaire way of understanding the world as a group of power struggles between identity groups, maybe their intellectual descendants or ancestors, rather, are more the sort of Maoist thinkers who tried to impose a a cultural revolution on a population rather than Marxist ones who were fermenting a literal economic revolution. Anyway, have a listen to David's ideas. Uh, If you find them dull or uninteresting, then (laughs) towards the second half of the conversation, we talk about all kinds of other things as well. He's certainly an interesting mind. He was just in Australia visiting, um, and I was glad to be able to grab a little bit of his his time. I hope you enjoy it. Professor David Martin-Jones for this installment of UTS's Permission to Think. What do you see happening in the West that is reminiscent of Maoism? Well, quite a lot. Basically, the interesting thing about Maoism in its you know, cultural revolutionary version in the 60s was that it saw culture as the weak point that needed rectification. So the influence of the cultural revolution in the West in the 60s was hugely important for a generation of uh, thinkers and writers, particularly in France. So from from the mid-60s, those who had previously become increasingly disillusioned both with 
Moscow-style communism, Marxism, and become increasingly dissatisfied with US-led democracy because of the Vietnam War and other wars. A generation found the Maoist experiment particularly appealing. And it was in Paris particularly that a generation of thinkers and writers, Jean-Luc Godard, and then the whole deconstructionist group um, of thinkers like Michel Foucault, Alain Badiou, Philippe Solet, and Julia Kristeva, all became enthusiasts for cultural revolution, for the, the activities of the Red Guards in assaulting culture or, or, or seeing culture as the basis for a complete revolution, a complete new spirit. And those thinkers, of course, were hugely influential on left academic thinking going forward through the influence that deconstruction has subsequently had on both British, American, and Australian universities. And Maoism versus Marxism, because the focus in Maoism is about reshaping culture rather than politics? That's right. I, I mean, the, it, it's quite interesting. Mao was a very original thinker in many ways. You know, so who, although he embraced Marxist Leninism, Stalinism, he was particularly uncomfortable with the idea that, or became increasingly uncomfortable with the idea that it's the economic base that determines the ideological superstructure. So although initially he followed a pretty Stalinist model of collectivization, by the 60s he decided that the party had kind of calcified and required a reanimation through an internal re rebellion or revolution that he orchestrated uh, that would remove all the cultural attributes that still remain despite the revolution. So interestingly, the way that's taken up in Western thinking going forward is to see not the economic base as the basis for revolution, but the cultural superstructure. And this is the beginning, of course, of what Rudi Deutschke, following you know, Mao himself, coined the long march through the institutions. And the long march is, of course, a reference to Mao's long march to the Yunnan caves in the late 20s. And Mao's conclusion about this, is this because by the 60s it becomes apparent that in the Soviet Union they're, they're required to continue using these grey, stale, brutal techniques of repression in order to entrench the control of the Communist Party in Russia and Mao wants a, what, a reinvigoration of, the, of, of public allegiance to those ideals that he thinks can only happen through, through culture? Is it from learning from the Soviets that he's taking this uh, or is it internal to China? I, I think it's internal to China because Chinese communism becomes increasingly disillusioned with post-Stalinist Soviet politics. It sees as it's too soft, actually. Khrushchev is, uh, is a weaker, you know, diluted version of what Mao likes, which is uh, a hardcore Stalinist approach. But it's also the idea that the, the failings of the party in its economic programs is less relevant than its re reanimation of the spirit. So it's, it's almost like a spiritual movement to obliterate the past in order to, to build the new persona, the new communist persona. So in, in, in Maoism, it's always an emphasis on the will, you know, so even if the, the crops aren't growing, if you will 
hard enough and quote enough quotations from the little red book, then things will improve. And I mean, that was not, not alien to the Soviet Union either, when you think about Lysenko and like the Soviet science. No, that, so that, 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 that's true. But I, I think um, the other aspect that, that becomes quite important for Mao is that it's Marxism with Chinese characteristics. So it's both about the complete renovation of the spirit through techniques of what, you know, early on, an American commentator, T.H. White, who was a journalist for, for Time or Newsweek in China in the 40s, said the Yan'an Caves, which was the commune from which the Maoist movement was born in the 40s, termed the processes one of mind-washing, or later translated, his later translation was consciousness-raising, you know which then becomes the hallmark of um, uh, the leftist radicalization, you know, that um, anybody who falls away from the, the line, whether it's a Trotskyite line or a, a Maoist line, has to have their consciousness rebooted. With great thanks, of course. Absolutely. Great, gratefully, gratefully having their, uh, their, themselves rebooted. Yeah. Um, so what does that look like, uh, the consciousness rebooting? How does Mao do it? Well, it, it, it's through processes of rectification during the Cultural Revolution, during the 60s, when the, the other feature of Maoism is he emphasizes early on the peasant as the basis of the revolution, not the industrial worker, because the peasant is poor and blank. By the time you get to the Cultural Revolution of, of the 60s, it's the young. The young are the carrier of the new message. So it's uh, the high schools and the students. It's at Beijing University, Beidar, that the first Darbitsa, the huge character posters, appear, denouncing the old guard in the Communist Party and calling for renewal. So the process is one of, um, you know, goes classically Chinese thinking, you know, in Confucianism and in Taoism, there's the idea of rectification of names to make names and things match. So the, the idea of rectification is to remodel the self to fulfill the party's desired objectives and what should be the, the true party members' uh, allegiance. And those who have fallen away from the party objectives in usually the universities, you know, the university lecturers and teachers were the first objects of rectification during the early years of the Cultural Revolution from about 64 onwards. And this involved not only public humiliation, but also essay, you had to write essays rectifying yourself, you know, um, showing how you'd been misguided and uh, apologizing and requiring uh, punishment for your misdeeds, which, if you're lucky, meant being um, sent off to the Heilong Jiang to work in the fields, you know. Uh, and if it was worse than that, you were denounced as a cow demon, made to wore a dunce's hat. A cow demon? A cow Like demon. a bovine yeah, well, cow demons were uh, particularly, obviously, nasty creatures. <laughs> <laughs> Cows aren't great, and demons are even worse. Yeah. So I suppose a cow demon is is worthy of the name. Um, so what, what you know, when you talk about, you have to write an apology and say that you were wrong and demonstrate your allegiance to uh, a different way of thinking. That doesn't sound wholly unfamiliar on a tinier level, I suppose, today, in the sense that we every week 
see someone issuing a groveling PR statement about how they didn't realize that what they said was offensive towards certain people and that they're going away to think hard about themselves and to do some work on their, on themselves. And now is not the time to, for me to speak, but to listen and to be educated and, and so on. Um, nonetheless, they're not being sent out to, mm. to slave camps and they're not being called cow demons. Mm. Uh, so is it a stretch? I think the processes have been obviously modified in the West. You know, uh, I think the development in Maoism is not so much to say that techniques of public denunciation were followed in a, a rigorously um, Maoist method, but the influence of the idea of rectification, of self-rectification, the idea that particularly Mao was, was very aware that Maoism as a doctrine, not just within China, but globally exported, relied on sympathetic or gullible Western uh, interlocutors. So from early on, uh, Western liberals like Edgar Snow went to China, wrote glowingly about what was going on amongst the communists. He described Mao as a lean, gaunt, Lincoln-esque figure. You know. So it wasn't that the whole methodology of Maoism was copied, but the thinking behind Maoism about the need to see culture as the vehicle for transformation of the society to undermine liberalism, really. So his early writings from the 1930s uh, on contradiction, combat liberalism, are all about pointing out that liberalism is weak, it tolerates different viewpoints, it seeks to manage disagreements. Maoism is all about pushing liberalism, using liberalism to undermine liberalism, and then imposing the orthodoxy in, through a sort of command and control structure. So it's, it's quite interesting, you know, the, the new left in the West became less interested in violent revolution from the late 60s onwards, but much more interested in cult capturing the cultural centres of Western thought and ideology, really. Yeah. You're in Australia at a, at a time when there has been an ongoing simmering controversy over one of Sydney's uh, most notorious and, and uh, famous radio uh, presenters named Kyle Sanderlands, who uh, had a, a big spray against the management of his own radio station a few weeks ago, in which he said they're idiots and they're stupid, and he called them spazzers, figure warning to, to spazzers, not a very polite thing to say. Uh, now, the Spastic Society and the Disability Council have denounced him. Uh, advertisers are saying that they're reviewing that. One of his, that's one of his colleagues or competitors, Abby Chatfield, uh, come out recently saying that she can't believe that he's still on the air. Uh, everyone's awaiting the apology that may never come because he's he's an obstinate type who doesn't doesn't play those sorts of games. Um, that example and my example of sort of issuing the apology when you mm. crossed a, a, a tripwire of using the wrong language about a disadvantaged group, whether that's, a, mm. uh, you know, people living with disabilities or whether that's transgender people or whatever. That's one example that you might draw a link to, to this sort of purification of, of culture. But what, what well, that's, I'd see it more in other areas, particularly in university, in, in the UK and the US. I'm not sure it's been in Australian academia for a while, but. You have to make, before you even apply for a job in the States or in, in the UK now, 
you have to sign up to various statements about diversity, about uh, anti-racism, about a plethora of politically correct behaviors and attitudes that have really very little to do with, say, what your scholarship might be about, whether it's, you know, sort of medical research or, um, you know, historical research. Before your application is even looked at as a scholar, you have to, you know, write a letter adhering to a set of what we would now call woke guidelines, you know? And so if you don't submit, subscribe to that and, and have questions about it for whatever reasons, then there's no chance of you getting a job. And increasingly, you know, through various programs that the university requires you to do, for instance, you know, when you go on study leave, I think you have to fill in human resource forms you know, showing that you've done various anti-racist, anti-sexist training, you know, that you are um, aware of workplace uh, difference, etc. Well, this this is all part of a, a micromanagement of the self that goes straight back, I'm afraid, to Chairman Mao. So the, the skeptic to, to that analysis will say, look, we've always had some form of gatekeeping for such positions. Sometimes they're explicit like this. Sometimes they're hidden, they're de facto, they're, uh, they're sort of baked into the structure of things. It probably would have been very difficult for uh, a transgender woman to be uh, accepted in those positions because she would have been ruled out of the gate in the 1950s. There were, you know, obviously impediments for people of color to get, uh, to get adequate representation in these places. So what's wrong with sort of making explicit the rejoinder to biases that were more tacit? Well, I think... Uh... That's a reasonable, you know, sort of statement. But on the other hand, I, I think what we have a problem with is that it seems uh, then to turn into not a consideration of your adequate qualification from the job in a, a sort of a, a culture blind or, um, you know, color blind application process that the tendency to overcompensate for minorities creates divisions within society that it's seeking presumably to heal. It seems to be doing the exact opposite, it seems to me. And I suppose the other, the other criticism could be along the lines of maybe a slippery slope type thinking that, look, you know, you wouldn't allow, you might require somebody to, to disavow Nazism if we were in the 1940s. And so if we've, if we've communally and collectively established that certain things are beyond the pale, like racism in 2022 or sexism, then where's the harm in ensuring that everybody is on the same page as a, a, a technique or a strategy to eliminate hate speech? Well, I think there's a whole problem with, you know, that uh, hate speech, you know, immediately sort of uh, evokes a number. Go on, go there. Let's start there. <laughs> Let's start there. Because it's an easy, I mean, I think this is a there's an easy one to knock down, I think, in the sense that there's been hate speech inflation, yeah. bigotry inflation, yeah. such that even, you know, to, to question whether or not one should be performatively announcing that uh, it's deeply important to us that we're standing on the land that was traditionally inhabited, exactly. inhabited well, by becomes, traditional owners yeah. might be considered hate speech. Yes, but it also seems to be a ritualistic performance now, like taking the knee at... Uh, you know, football matches. I mean, it's 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 sort of a becomes a kind of banal gestural politics. I might, you know, that the the idea that you know minority populations might have been discriminated against in various ways, particularly 
say, in the 60s and 70s, there's been a huge transformation. You know, I mean, you see minority communities being well represented at, at every level of uh, public services uh, in the private sector. And, you know, the, the more society has, you know, in its sort of performances, has become less and less racist, there seems to be an elite preoccupation of making an awareness of, of discrimination in the past something that you, you've got to be feel guilty about if you're part of the dominant you know, kind of culture. I have heard someone say that there's a supply and demand problem that people who want to have us constantly thinking about hate speech have, which is that there's just not, not enough real flagrant racists wandering around anymore. Well, so we have to accuse everybody of being racist and, and then it if has they're to, not well, it, exactly it has, the same Well, page. it's the, the Kay and Day Andrews, you know, line, Birmingham sociology, the sociologist who, who argues that if you're not actively anti-racist, then you must be a racist. Well, that doesn't seem to me to be um, logical at all, you know, that, that you can be perfectly tolerant of anybody um, from various backgrounds, that if you have to be positively anti-racist, this seems to be another form of this Maoist, you know, enthusiasm that doesn't allow... I, th I think the area that's become increasingly worrying from this sort of Western assimilation of this cultural revolutionary model is, as with Mao, it goes... It doesn't allow for discrimination between the public and the private, you know. So, I mean, one of the things about hate speech re regulation, you know, the College of Policing in the UK have, have even, you know, followed up, is people making private remarks on social media between, say, family members. And this becomes an issue for the state. This is, um, you know, the basis of totalitarianism one-on-one, really. Yeah. Is there a risk of, well, let's talk about the cultural aspect of that before we talk about the legal or political aspect of that. What is the importance of having a private, why is it, why is so, someone who's listening to this and goes, well, I don't really think it's ever okay to be flagrantly racist and sexist. So why should I respect the right of somebody to be privately racist and sexist any more than I would respect their right to be publicly racist and sexist? Like don't go around killing babies in public or private. Well, it's difference between killing babies and saying you don't like babies, isn't it? You know, I mean, the the idea that um, in in the private realm you you might be in a pub with a bunch of blokes and make an off colour joke that you you know that doesn't mean you are a racist or a sexist. It just means that people have never been as pure as Puritanism always wanted them to be. You know. And there is an element, you know, not only of Maoism, but um, cultish puritanical thinking that informs the, the, the current um, woke ideology, I think. So in addition to these kinds of statements of agreement with anti-racist policies that academics might have to sign, and uh, in addition to uh, what one might broadly call cancel culture, which we can, mm. uh, we can come back to, are there any other specific examples that you can think of that ring alarm bells for you? Well, I'll tell you where I, I think it's gone quite interestingly air-shaped at the moment is if you think that the idea of animating Maoism is the assault on the cultural foundations of, say, Western liberalism, basically, so that now, um, you know, uh, Shakespeare or um, any major um, thinker or writer 
has to have a you know a trigger warning attached to his views and obviously you know they they're they're writing in contexts that are very different from from the contemporary world and you read into them an anachronistic kind of hatred that wasn't really there you know i mean it was, you know, they, they were writing in a in a historical context that is very different from our own and and to judge them by contemporary standards is is an act of uh, flagrant advocacy rather than scholarship um so so there's that issue but i think the the further evolution of the whole assault on culture and the privileging of positions around promoting people on grounds of ethnic uh, marginalization rather than say talent together with the idea that the whole of western society has to be governed by not only these kind of governance criteria but environmental and social governance criteria and the way that has now fed into the business sector into corporate policy in, and, and particularly into the the way in which investment funds and pension funds invest in products that have the um ESG imprimatur is actually ESG meaning environmental social governance criteria which are laid down through United Nations approved regulations you know so uh, as as one recent american writer calls it the triumph of woke capitalism is actually undermining the performance of 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 western market economies whereas in say china or um well china particularly there's there's no none of these governance criteria apply so ironically you know it's almost a reverse of the marxist dialectic you start with instead of starting with the economic base and radicalizing the proletariat to overtake the means of production to, to defeat the capitalist class it's kind of the other way round in the maoist cultural revolution modality that has spread into the west whereby you assault the cultural foundations and through that you impose criteria on your own capitalist in- infrastructure that re- renders it increasingly incompetent because it's so overwhelmed with this kind of new cool bureaucratic regulation that it has to pass through before it makes a widget or constructs a you know a, a microprocessor and the and those conditions may not only hobble your companies they may actually hobble the cultural conversation about the ideas that the their proponents want to see discussed in the sense that those ideas then become co-opted by giant corporations with easy slogans That's right. instead of actually getting your hands That's dirty right. and addressing racism or sexism or whatever it is that you want to address no, no that, that, that's right there's a whole rhetoric here that um in many ways advertises um these these kinds of statements as almost they're, they're um, almost fashion statements really you know and again it's not surprising that hollywood and you know um advertising agencies and banks you know find the image repertoire that it embraces through these kind of virtue signaling gestures doesn't actually mean that they're addressing the real problems that people are facing in an increasingly tough recessionary you know uh, energy light environment which um europe the most sort of woke place on the planet has 
has embraced. Why is Europe the most woke place on the planet? Well, I think Europe, and particularly the UK, have have become you know so over governed by an, an elite, what uh, David Goodhart has called a uh, an anywhere class that that sees itself as beyond any kind of uh, cultural attachment to anywhere, but anywhere that is um, approved of by a kind of Davos community where they go and have their, um, you know, regular meetings to say how environmentally pure and green and moral they all are, despite being, you know, in the top 2% of the population, whilst the, you know, the struggling masses are, are, are increasingly rendered voiceless. And the EU is, is a particularly good example of that kind of new class thinking that you know runs an a, a elite association of global connections and particularly European connections, whilst the communities that who haven't even voted for the EU, you know, they voted for their national governments, now face massive energy price rises because of the failure to invest in gas and uh, nuclear. You know, when Europe is low on all those basic energy. Uh, needs that you, it sounds to me like you're coming back to the Marxist economic or political question and straying from the Maoist cultural one because while it may be the case that one can make that critique of Europe, if I was going to name the most woke place in the world, it would probably be the U.S. or at least Silicon Valley or California or or Brooklyn in the sense that. In which part of the world are you most likely to see someone with their pronouns in their signature, in their email? In which part of the world are you most likely to get fired for telling a joke that was sexist? I mean, a French person is less likely to get hauled before HR for making a sexist joke. That's that's a fair point. The the way I put it in the book on the strategy of Maoism in the West is that, you know, Maoism as a doctrine, you know, came out of Yunnan caves, was hothoused in Paris by the deconstructionist movement, and then found its natural home in the Ivy League schools of America when they, you know, sort of embraced the deconstructive, deconstructive methodology to um, undermine the um, traditional perception of the arts and uh, social sciences. So you're quite right. You know, the, in some senses, the America is the the centre of this kind of speech regulating control of uh, thought and uh, attitude, particularly you know the the left coast of America. On the other hand, America still has a vigorous press and independent colleges that they're able to, you know, mount an alternative viewpoint. In Europe, there is less of the, you know, pronoun identification phenomenon and other aspects of wokeness. Yet at the same time, you know, if you looked at practices of the EU, it is far more of a, exercises far more regulative capacity than uh, the American government can in, you know, its various, um, because of the very nature of the federal constitution in the States. So the EU has created a particularly bureaucratic structure, perhaps, you know, less evidently woke than what's coming out of the left coast, but nevertheless on a very similar trajectory. And you know, out of Brussels comes uh, lots of regulation on uh, gender, race, migration issues that is creating a far more virulent populism in Europe at the moment 
than maybe in in the states. You know, where obviously, you know, the um, QAnon demonstrations is still uh, animating the Democrats in in Washington. America's. I mean, I'm, I, mean I am coming back to a fairly Marxist line. <laughs> America is not suffering. You know, I mean, it's 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 not going to have the kind of deep recession that that Europe is currently facing. And and that is in turn, it's not that it's um, feeding anything woke, it's feeding the reaction to wokeness, you know, yes. through these rising populist movements that interestingly, China and uh, Russia are quite keen on manipulating, you know. Mm. So at various times, Putin has pointed out that, you know, you know, obviously he wants to unite his Slavic uh, world, which is not going too well. But in his defense, he's saying, I am fighting for the rights of a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman. And um, I approve of, you know, the the idea that um, the, the basic family unit is, is a male female construction you know mm. um, or he's also kicking in the heads of gay people on the streets of yeah yeah it's, it's, no, no, absolutely he's um you know not exactly uh tolerant kind of but he he does express a conservative traditional view that has been you know completely smashed by wokeness in say the uk or um uh, Northern Europe, but there is also this you know sort of sense of a disenfranchised precariat class looking for some form of reassertion of what it saw as you know traditional values um, so i mean just to continue on with uh, with marxist or materialist explanations of all this the question that's floating in the background is like why now why you know if maoism happened if the cultural revolution happened in the 60s then why have we waited a half century oh, to seep yes. down and one possible explanation that sometimes gets bandied about and perhaps one explanation why it's worse on some levels in the in the states than it is in europe is that there are underlying economic reasons for mass disillusionment with the established way of doing things and maybe the the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009 and then the pandemic supercharged it and turned into the george floyd protests and so on that, that people are clutching for explanations well for cultural explanations yeah fundamentally economic I, 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 I think um you know if we can slightly recast that in a different book I, I i've written you know in 2020 called history's fools the pursuit of idealism and the revenge of politics it it argues that not along maoist lines but along similarly ideological lines that the end of history moment that sort of captured the elites in the west and the idea of a borderless world that was fashionable from the 1990s onwards which was you know the, the whole World Economic Forum vision, and that would create both endless growth, greater you know global integration through both regional and international bodies, and that um, it was only a matter of time before you know China became a democracy, Russia would inexorably democratize because liberalism had had shown itself to be the only doctrine that was sustainable at the end of the Cold War. Now, that held, you know, almost for a decade, I suppose, under, you know, the third way thinking of Tony Giddens, you know, Tony Blair's intellectual guru, mm. Lord Giddens, and was vice chancellor or director of the LSE. But broadly, this Blairite, Clintonite. Yeah, that's right. That, that sort of vision. That, that was the, um, and, and that was becoming already increasingly 
woke in its sort of understandings of integrating minorities, etc. But at the same time, it was a seamless movement towards global integration and the disintegration of states. So regions became the the new unit of you know identity. Plus, you know, you know, you get people like Junkers, the former president of the European uh, Commission, saying uh, borders were the worst things ever invented. You know, so and he says that in 2015, when migrants, when Angela Merkel has basically uh, opened Europe to uh, as many migrants who as want to come there. So the the it was that liberal vision, that end of history vision that's still kicking around in elite circles that came catastrophically apart, both economically from the financial crisis of um, to, from the Lehman Brothers fall and then the euro crisis, but also in terms of its uh, liberal wars of intervention in both Iraq and Afghanistan, which proved so catastrophic really. Just to, to pick you up on one point, when you said that Blair and Clinton were sort of the, the were sort of woke in uh, avant la lettre, <laughs> avant la lettre. Uh, well, you know, but, but uh, I don't. I think we may have woke inflation here uh, in the sense. In the, well, I'm, I just want you to explain what you mean by woke, because is it the case that any attempt to redress historical injustice by increasing the representation of historically marginalized communities is prima facie woke? I wouldn't say prima facie woke. I think there are worries about uh, rationally instrumentalizing that democracy should should have direct uh, representation for minorities on the basis that they are a percentage of the population rather than seeing everybody as a member of a polity. And you know, But didn't we get to a point at which it was clear that there were some kind of, there were various kinds of ineffable structural impediments that weren't moving fast enough. And so the people in those communities felt like, well, it's all very well to be sort of colorblind and gender blind and ethnicity blind about all this, but uh, something's holding us back. And so we need some sort of... Well, there was all these arguments about glass ceilings, I suppose. But um, I mean, you know, it, it initially came out of the, the, the second wave feminist movement saying that, you know, women are being marginalized into the family rather than into jobs. Now, that was an argument, and the argument became increasingly persuasive. I don't know whether you actually needed targets to get there. Targeting seems to me to be a rationalist device that, that promotes discord rather than accord. I mean, over time, one would say, you know, as the argument was made about say, women's rights, you know, sort of John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor, you know, are arguing that women were underrepresented in the 1860s. Movements of second wave, you know, like uh, second wave feminism in, in, in the 60s, arguing for far more female representation. The argument was made, you know, intellectually, and women were already, you know, taking more and more. But, but isn't that the point, David, that it's not much of a consolation to the women who, who want to see greater equality to say, this argument was made 160 years ago. Well, They'd say, well, precisely, it was made 160 years ago. Yeah, but it was look already. At, look at Australian Parliament. It's still all, you know, it's still it's overwhelmingly, well, not all. That would be a, an exaggeration. It was still, it's still majority. Yeah. Um, and the and CEOs, I mean, FTSE five, you know, FTSE companies and, and all that. Now, there may be other reasons that one could go into that Jordan Peterson would write another book about, about yeah. why, you know, you need a certain type of personality that is 
more commonly found among males for for jobs like CEOs or presidents, but there's certainly a dearth of, of women in areas which, you know, feminists still care deeply about seeing representation in. Yeah, but I, I think, um, you know, it, it, it is in a Western democracy where you have a liberal pluralism that opens its, itself up to those kinds of criticisms that, yeah, there are structural factors impeding women and minorities to, to a degree, but the arguments are made in terms of their intellectual plausibility. Changes have been made, you know, there have been attempts to regulate precisely, you know, populations that should be represented across the board in a, um, a model arrangement, but this is sort of trying to preempt, it's, it's an argument out of equality and instead of it being an equality of opportunity. It becomes an equality of outcome, which doesn't necessarily enhance the outcomes that are necessarily thought to be, you know, most effective. So would you, I mean, would your argument, just to close the the chapter on that portion of the conversation, be just be egalitarian about this, treat people on their merits, and then wait rather than having targets, Uh, but but just be patient? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the reforms are around equality of opportunity, you know, you know, color blindness, um, gender blindness, allow, you know, equal opportunities for all across the board and allow the processes of cultural connection, integration. In the private sphere, it emerges. You see, you know, in, in communities that I know in, in London, um, you know, that were you know, more and more or less ethnically divided in the sixties and seventies, over time they're 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 much more integrated, you know, sort of long standing, for instance, West Indian populations in uh, West or South London are, you know, totally integrated within our, you know, sort of a, a London, South London, you know, kind of mentality. Yeah. They share the same interests, they, they follow the same soccer teams, you know, they go, go to the same bars, they like the same music. It, it's only the sort of a, a middle-class elite who actually probably are not that integrated with, um, you know, they, they live in their NIMBY, you know, kind of areas, which are almost ghettoized now. So they are imposing these sort of criteria against what is perhaps naturally occurring without having to have it forced down people's throats, you know, which is what a lot of, you know, working people kind of resent, I think. And that then leads to backlashes that can become ugly. Which are completely unnecessary. You know, I mean, you know, there there is um, a whole problem of, you know, allowing uh, groups to integrate through their own um, kind of natural osmosis in a a liberal society that, 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 uh, was you know was quite clearly occurring in the UK as Goodhart argues between the sixties and the nineties. The the problem that has caused more tensions in, in in places like the UK is the open slather migration policies that um, Tony Blair allowed from ninety seven onwards. You know there was a, a migration at levels of you know the size size of cities of 
Bristol or Cardiff a year, you know. Um, and that wasn't actually necessary as part of the EU, as I understand it, right? I mean, no, other countries no. like Germany didn't do no, that. He, they didn't have, he actually right. went further than the European average. And, and, and for very cynical motives, you know, because he thought Which they, what? they'd be natural Labour voters. Right. You know, they, right. they'd sort of, you know, see that it's only an interesting, you know. Yeah, it's a funny thing, you know. David Frum, I think it was, who's been a guest on this show, said, uh, you know, if liberals don't enforce borders, then fascists will. Yeah, meaning that mm. you have to give people this, a sense of control over their own country, otherwise oh. they're gonna they're gonna act out in nasty ways. And this this is this is a great Australian moral conundrum that mm. sort of stains the conscience of, of mm. Australia going back since the end of the Second World mm. War, which is that we've made a a bit of a Faustian pact with ourselves, which is that we'll have the most, well, started in the 80s, really, we'll have the most horrendously inhumane policy towards people who come here uh, in an unauthorised fashion and we'll lock them up in perpetuity on in desert camps in remote Pacific islands. And at the same time, we'll be one of the most generous countries in the world to the humanitarian resettlement of refugees and have very high levels of immigration on the bet that the, that the middle Australian voter will tolerate the latter because of the former and will tolerate high levels of immigration as long as they have a sense of control over who's coming into the country. I mean, well, I think they're, you know, that is a form of the social contract, isn't it? I mean, the, the thing besetting Europe at the moment is migration. I mean, you know, the UK has generally been pretty tolerant part of the world in my experience. Um, and there was no problem with... Um, you know, levels of migration that were stable in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, the, by the mid-90s, you know, the UK had a, a very stable Asian, West Indian, you know, Afro-Caribbean population that had, you know, migrated since the Second World War. And there was more net outflow than inflow of population, you know, so you had a kind of a stable, evolving, integrated, culturally diverse, but, you know, pretty successful ar arrangement. The, the problem comes with Blair's opening under, as you say, you know, um, going beyond EU regs to allow massive migration, really, on the level of over 250,000 a year. And then that sort of uh, inability to control borders after that has left uh, an incredibly, you know, mounting leg legacy of increasing dissolution and disaffection. And it's going to be exacerbated, of course, by growing recessionary pressures. You know, once uh, unemployment kicks in, once, um, you know, energy prices are soaring through the roof and governments offering little relief, you know, the... the potential for um, disintegrating rather than integrating communities becomes more and more acute. And of course, that whole that whole Blairite gambit ended up being a huge own goal in the sense that it's possible that Brexit wouldn't have happened had it not been for the disillusion that was created no, by that. No, and that was precisely the sort of thing that the people who were in favour of high immigration yes. rates would have championed Brexit, I mean, uh, you know, remaining in the EU. That's fine. Uh, and they, you know, they shot themselves in the foot yeah. uh, by going too far too fast. Um, are you worried about the about populist far right in Europe? To a degree, yeah. I think there's um, uh, elements there that are concerning. You know, I think which the, concerns you more? The I think the the um, the, the groups around Pegida, you know, the the German fascist groups, some of the uh, the white right groups that influenced, you know, people like Tennant in, in Australia to do the 
Um, so there's a lot of material out there that's quite um, eugenically disturbing. So I think we've got to distinguish between those who are populist in the sense of wanting certain traditional understandings and stability, not mass migration, and and wanting to to have control of their not only their own borders but their own governments, not being dictated to by Europe. So um, certain elements of populism are completely about uh, sustaining traditional understandings of, say, Christian conservative values. They're not particularly liberal, but they're not racist, eugenicist, extremists. You know, So somebody like Maloney in Italy is a rather interesting phenomenon, I think, because she's been tarred as being, a, you know, Brothers of Italy being a straight continuation of Mussolini-style fascism. But actually in her, you know, in many of her statements, she's saying that she's a, uh, an admirer of conservative thinkers like Roger Scruton. You know, she would like to be a Tory, she said, although there's no Tories left in the UK now. <laughs> <laughs> and very few in Italy, I'm told. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think we'll see more of that then? I mean, can you imagine there being a, an, a, another major exit from the EU, a continental, a, a significant continental country exiting the EU? What happens this winter is going to be incredibly significant for the EU given the potential energy crisis that will be generated by a harsh winter, you know, and particularly in Germany, you know, because Germany has been the, the economic bedrock of, of the EU, really. Did you see that even Greta Thunberg came out and oh, said that, nuclear, yeah, yeah. that Germany was crazy for not building more nuclear? Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. I was, she's suddenly a nuclear enthusiast. Mm, it's mm. very interesting. And Well, I, many, many left-wing climate people who are very rigorous on the science, uh, you know, are coming around to that way of thinking. It's just not a fashionable thing. On no, the no, it's just, uh, yeah, it's not. But th that is the obvious way out for both conservative and, you know, uh, social democrat, green, you know, ish thinking to say, well, nuclear is the obvious way to go. The trouble is over the next, you know, it would take, I've been told, something like 10 years to generate the small um, nuclear reactors that uh, Rolls-Royce are developing at the moment, you know, they've got a you know, system, you know, they've got a model in place that could pr provide for um, small-scale nuclear reactors that are not um, going to lead to large, you know, uranium uh, deposits. So, so the problem is that, um, you know, there's been a total failure of policy on energy across Europe, you know, in order to... I mean, not just Europe, it's here as well. It's, it, it, Australia has, has had a yeah, totally yeah. confused, has just not known what to do about the conjunction of the climate crisis with our you know, reliance on fossil fuels and mining, with our superabundance of renewable resources, well, the, but also the fact that we are anath that nuclear is anathema to Australians for some reason. So we've, we've not found that that right mix, that and, bridge. And, and the problem is the, you know, the renewables are not that renewable in themselves. You know, um, you know, when wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you don't get no energy. This is the problem. Well, here we probably do have enough, but you may, I mean, you may need some supplemental baseload power that some people say could be nuclear, but to have that, you would have had to be investing in nuclear 20 years ago, because as you say, there's still a lag. And by the time we wait for nuclear to become viable here, we probably will have good enough battery technology that we can tide ourselves over when the sun's not shining yeah. and the wind's not blowing. But these are things that need to have been wrestled with in, in the year 2000, well, not the year 2022. Also, um, you know, the idea that 
you know, in Europe, obviously gas is a huge problem because, um, they, the, the German economy that decided to get rid of nuclear under Merkel after, you know, because of its reaction to Fukushima in Japan, you know, it's a, you know, you think, well, haven't been that many earthquakes or tidal tsunamis in Germany in the last, you know, <laughs> couple of decades. But on the basis of that, after about 2012, you know, the Merkel government under green influence decided to cut, to remove all its nuclear reactors, you know, so three of Well, them, I mean, they were assuming that Nord Stream and yeah, that Russia was yeah. going to be the, the future, all, right? Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, this was always to be uh, the gas provision was always towards, um, you know, it was a transitional fuel, wasn't it, to the towards renewable, yeah. um, renewable, you know, net zero um, pu purity, you know. And um, the problem was, you know, A, well, you know, relying on Russia seems to have gone pear-shaped. But three nuclear reactors closed in December 2021 in Germany. Ugh. And th there were three more supposed to close this year, but they've decided to try and, you know, going and nuclear in france I mean, france was very far-sighted on nuclear you know because it didn't have north sea gas or oil in the 80s under uh, Mitterrand. but they've they've allowed their um nuclear technologies to decline so they're not as efficiently produ producing the amount of fuel that, that france france is going to have problems this year Really? I thought they were an exporter. I mean, 10 years ago, they were selling nuclear energy, electricity to they're, their neighbors. You no, know, they, they've got um, the lack of investment in, in the nuclear, or even though EDF is one of the top, you know, nuclear um, power providers, uh, or, you know, the nuclear reactor um, designers, they still have problems at the moment with their, um, their nuclear. Yeah. And that was providing them with 80% of their energy only a few years back. It's now dropped. and. You know, the, one of the egregious uh, features of this, coming back to woke capitalism, <laughs> is the way in which, you know, you could offset your carbon. You know, so rather than uh, develop, you know, still viable fields in the North Sea, the UK government, up from Blair through um, Brown to Cameron, to you know, May and Johnson were all committed to this you know pursuit of uh, net zero, and in order to do that, to get green virtuousness, they offset their carbon emissions. So they were using gas, but rather than get it from the North Sea, they get it from the Middle East or uh, Libya, in order to say, well, we're not using gas, but you know, Libya and Oh, I see, because they're not the producer, so it shows up on a different column of the bell sheet. That's right. So it's the equivalent, I've argued, of purchasing indulgences in, in the uh, 16th century. You know, if you think about um, how the Vatican was built in Rome, it was built by mass sale of indulgences for people's sins in order to create the, you know, very beautiful Vatican uh, city. However, that process of indulgence sales, you know, which any religious, serious, uh, faith-based thinker would find egregious, uh, like Martin Luther said, well, you know, the, 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 the church has become infected with corruption. We need to start a new church. You've got the Reformation and you've got some religious wars going on for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. This offset thing is the equivalent of a papal indulgence in the 16th century, which gets a virtuous tick from environmental corporate 
governance investment uh, portfolios? Well, I suppose it depends whether it actually has an on the ground impact. If you're if you're you know if you're paying Brazil not to burn down the rainforest, uh, then maybe that's good. If you're buying something to shift numbers around on a ledger, maybe not. But anyway, let's not go bogged down on climate because uh, yes, let's come back to let's wrap by coming back to the original point here, which is this impact that this sort of Maoist idea of cultural revolution that then bleeds into French academia mm. is now having as ripple effects today. How is academia doing today? How is freedom of conversation, freedom of thought, exploration of ideas doing? Or is that too broad? Well, no, it's not too broad. It just isn't happening. <laughs> <laughs> Well, must I was I said too broad because I suspected he's in some disciplines. I mean, maybe in the study of artificial intelligence or something. Oh yeah, that's it's, it's, it's a maybe. wildly flourishing well, area, yeah. but maybe. Well, it's quite interesting, you know, from figures I've you know looked at in in the UK and probably in Australia too, um, because of the imposition of uh, an agenda around uh, you know no platforming, you know trigger warnings, etc., and a sort of presentation of history as. Um, a kind of a moral bagatelle, you know, where people are judged, you know, anachronistically on whether they were pro or anti, you know, feminist, transgender, you know, whatever criteria in the 16th century. There's been, uh, you know, a notable decline in students, you know, now studying English literature, and I suspect increasingly history. At university. Yeah, there was actually a story out just last week that in Australia, mm. in the past 10 years, uh, ancient history has halved. The number of students taking ancient history in Australia at that university has halved in 10 years. Mm. So, I, I, you know, whether that's with the um, imposition of these kinds of you know, trigger warning criteria or just growing uh, indifference is hard to say. But I, I think one of the points that, you know, maybe hasn't been made, which, you know, is, is part of that Maoist dynamic is that it likes to promote indignation and rage, you know, rather than reasonable debate. And, and it, 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 it feeds off what Andrew McIntyre, the um, philosopher of Beyond Virtue, argued in the 80s, that because of the incommensurability of our ethico-political you know, understandings, that rights, utility, justice, are values, but they, they conflict. There is no possibility, you know, it's like the idea around equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. There is always a conflict. You should appoint more, uh, you know, minorities. For, you know, and if you don't do more, then, you know, this is absolutely intolerable from, you know, that position of social justice. But from a, uh, you know, a pure utility economic perspective, you'd say, well, no, I don't agree with that. That's treating one as more than one you know, in terms of utility preferences. So there is a, a complete incommensurability of values that's emerged within liberalism, was always at the heart of liberalism, really, from the 19th century. But by the 20, late 20th century, it had become, because of that incommensurability, and because there was a, a greater emphasis on feeling and emotion, which was all part of the Maoist thinking, but part of the culture itself, you know, the, the me decayed, the narcissism was all around my emotions, my feelings, the, that protest and indignation became the, the carriers of a kind of public moral message. The more committed you were, the more indignant you were, mm. the more you protested, you had a 
If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's right. A slogan is a slogan. Yes, yes. Uh, And just to clarify, the incommensurability, you you lost me there a bit. That's the incommensurability between treating each individual as uh, an individual on the basis of their merits and respecting the sanctity of each individual human being and the value of uh, equality of outcome. That's right. That you can't have those two things be the same in an unequal well, it, it means, well, if someone's being privileged, you know, in terms of outcomes, in terms of their minority victim status, if they get a special tick, you know, um, in terms of promotion or, um, you know, appointment, as opposed to someone who, who doesn't have, you know, a victim status, then you're counting one as more than one. And in a, in a classic utilitarian you know, framework going back to Bentham, you know, one counts for one and only one. Right. You know? I see. I see. Yeah. So egalitarianism and sort of the rights of the individual are, are at issue there. But where is that? Yeah. Sorry. Finish. That, well, that, that just, just because the, um, you know, the, the, the language of discourse has become so inflamed by, you know, you either see my position or, you know, there's something wrong with you. The basis for, reasoned argument has become diminished as protest and indignation become the the signifiers of a commitment that shows anybody who doesn't have that you know mm. is, is obviously defective in some ways so the context of argument and the self-assertive shrillness that sort of is invoked in various protest you know um, modalities means that these protesters are, are often, you know, talking to themselves because their arguments, are, you know, that it merely reinforces their truth, if you like, mm. against the those who sit outside it. And worryingly, you know, the the, the context of uh, political debate has become a kind of internal civil war rather than a source for what was classic liberalism, compromise, adjustment, you know, and reasoned compromise, not driven by emotive sloganeering. And speaking of incommensurability, there's an incommensurability inside that civil war in the sense that lived experience has now become, uh, you know, who gets to tell whose stories and who gets to say what about what is now a sort of a trump card that can also be used. So it's not even really possible for you to have a policy debate with someone from a marginalized community about a policy towards that marginalized community because you lack the standing essentially to that's even right. have an opinion about it because wait, wait, the wait. lived experience yeah, then, trumps reason. That's right. And then and that, that that's the almost the complete antithesis of where liberal thinking began. You know, if you look at John Locke's two treatises, you know, the idea of um, the minimal state in Locke was was to, to create the idea of an umpire who was not involved, you know, that if property owners or whatever were in in uh, conflict or, you know, if, if somebody had ripped you off on a contract and um, you took the uh, executive power of nature into your own hands and punished them, you know, excessively because your um, your emotions were involved, this was the reason why you created a legal framework, a constitution that would act as a, an umpire between contesting, um, you know, claimants. Uh, so the idea was that the the law was about being a good umpire in a 
critical yeah. edge, not, well, um, not picking engaged, you know, that's right. Yeah. And of course those rules were, I mean, we, we can add all of the usual caveats about the fact that those rules were made at a time when only white male property owners were able to have a say or to be, to be playing on the court at all. But nonetheless, the principle, the principle. I would imagine should extend to all well, people it, in any year. Well, eventually it did. If you're part of the demos, yeah, then you yeah, have. Yeah, then it sort of extends, you know. I mean, Locke was writing what he was writing in the context of a particular, you know, civil, you know, dissent between a, uh, you know, Catholic, proto-Catholic monarchy and an, a, a Whig oligarchy. So, you know, it was, you know, kind of uh, structured in terms of a particular debate, but it's broader argument, which fed into the American constitution, was all about limitation of powers and the idea that, you know, the law, the law was the, was a, a commonly shared understanding between the citizenry, that it wasn't something that an arbitrary um, authority could erect over you. You know, so mm. the, the executive always fulfilled the requirements of a, uh, a community who who ultimately were guided by the idea that they would protect their property in themselves and in what they owned, you know, and that was the basis for the idea of the state not being a moral, purposeful, organic instrument, but a merely a convenient superstructure, you know, to 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 facilitate autonomous individuals, you know, and what we're losing, I think, under wokeness is the idea of individual autonomy of, um, well, basic liberty, really. If you're right, if that is what we're losing and there is a, a sort of a fork in the road in which we can either go down a path of greater thought control and greater thought policing and, uh, you know, a greater enforcement of, uh, an increasingly rigid cultural vision of what's proper to believe and proper to say. And then down the other fork in the road, there is a path towards greater intellectual flourishing, uh, a, a more chaotic and rambunctious and perhaps offensive public square in which people can express themselves more, more freely. What steps do we take now to pursue the latter? Well, I, I think one of the areas that, you know, becomes, you know, very important to control social media. You know, social media is, is, is really a media platform. It should be subject to the same libel criteria as um, the printed media. You know, so I think social media has, has been one of the most uh, virulent promulgators of these kinds of emotive, intense communities that brook no tolerance of their viewpoints. And the way in which the um, social media companies themselves will, you know, act as kind of moral arbiters, which they have no uh, elected responsibility for. Beyond that, I think, you know, the one of the ways in which the state needs to back down is, is, is the massive expansion of the public service over the last, um, you know, decades and um so that the majority or the you know the a large group of the citizenry are tied to the state through public service jobs you create a, a kind of natural voting constituency for the public bureaucratic state you know so but what connection does that have to your concern about cultural maoism well then that cultural bureaucratic state 
you know, tells you what exactly you're supposed to be thinking on areas, you know, and, and the area where it was most frightening, which we seem to be rapidly forgetting was the massive extension in bureaucratic power, uh, under COVID, you know, and, and the erosion of freedoms there were beyond, uh, you know, I mean, something like Locke would have been that totally astonished that, you know, we were having to go out every night and clap the NHS for, you know, doing their, what they're supposed to be doing. And the idea that places like Victoria were, you know, kind of locked down for two years or New Zealand was locked down forever, you know, this is an astonishing erosion of our liberties and freedoms, you know, and um, we seem to have fallen into that with, with very little pushback, you know. So the big state needs to be um, shorn of some of its uh, yeah, bigness. Okay, social media, uh, the public service, I'll give you one more thing to amend in the, as emperor. Of the universe before I kick you out. <laughs> What's your last thing? Leave the private sphere alone. Leave the private sphere alone. I mean, there has to be something in academia, surely. Is there? Is there a? What's the low hanging fruit? Is there well, a reform that you would make to the way that we well, I, 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 I think, universities? I, I think you know to get rid of human rights. Uh, rights. <laughs> Stop the tape quickly, quickly before he corrects himself. <laughs> there is a problem with human rights, but human resources, you know, the human, right. The, the managerial nature of the, the campus, right? The massive, you know, growth of the university uh, undergraduate population. You know, people like Blair wanting fifty percent of the population in education. The expansion of um, education in Australia under Howard, as well as under you know, Labor governments, has created an infantilization of the university and the education it offers. Plus, it's massively enhanced the managerial class within universities that lay down the guidelines that increasingly erode the basis of um, the liberties and scholarships that, you know, universities used to uh, promote and uh, sustain, really. All right. Those are your decrees. Uh, David, we'll pass them down to the bureaucrats in the yeah, I'm sure they'll listen to me. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very time. much for uh, inviting me on. Permission to talk. <laughs> Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Seps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.